singer-songwriter Mark Cohn is best known for his song, Walking in Memphis, but it's a lesser-known song of his that's a very favorite of mine. The song is titled, The Things We Handed Down. And for those of you who are not familiar with the song, here's a short little snippet. Okay, I realize that for some of you here this morning, especially those of you who are 20 and younger, you're thinking, why would anybody listen to that? Uh, and I get it. Uh, if I would have first heard this song when I was 16, it probably wouldn't have made it onto my Spotify playlist or my mixtape at the time. Uh, but it just so happened that this came out at the time that I was preparing to be a father for the very first time. And so in the nine months leading up to the birth of my son, Turner, I probably listened to that song no less than 200 times. It captured so much of the wonder and curiosity that I was experiencing. Hardly a day would go by without me wondering, what's this unborn child going to look like? What's his personality going to be like? What's he going to grow up to do with his life? How soon can I put a baseball glove on his hand? That's what we do as parents, right? I mean, the moment somebody turns to you and says, hey, guess what? You're going to have a baby. Immediately, we begin to wonder. There's little doubt in my mind that the two teens that we're so mindful of at this time of year were any different. But surely that unexpected, unexplainable, unimaginable news of pregnancy birthed in Mary and Joseph, an immediate sense of curiosity. However, so much of the wonder that they were experiencing, it, it wasn't really necessary. It wasn't necessary because 700 years before that announcement, a prophet of God by the name of Isaiah foretold of the child that they were being entrusted to raise. He foretold this is the sex of the baby that they are going to have, and this is the name that they are to give him. We read the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin, will give, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. We'll call him Emmanuel. And this child, like so many of the boys at that time, he would grow up and he had learned the trade of his father, Joseph the carpenter. But the Isaiah also revealed that here's his real destiny. His real destiny is he's going to sit on a throne for the rest of eternity. We go back to the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What type of king would this child born to a virgin and carpenter be? Well, Isaiah didn't leave the nation of Israel to wonder. Instead, of what he chose to do is give four distinctive titles or names to the coming Messiah King. And these titles or these names captured the nature and the character and the mission of the one that was to come. Well, are those names or the names that we just sang? They are the names that are mentioned in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. It's the second of the four titles, Mighty God, that we turn our attention to this morning. 
In the ancient Near East, kings were not only held in high regard, they were given godlike status. The reason they were given godlike status is because it was believed that they were uniquely close to God. They were representatives of God. They were empowered by God. But Isaiah, in this particular prophecy, wants everyone to know that the coming Messiah King, he's so much more than that. In fact, the word that he uses in that particular text in the original language that's translated God is Elohim, or El, one of the very names of God. In his further prophecy in Isaiah chapter 10, he uses this title, Mighty God, in reference to the one true living God. We read this prophecy, Isaiah 10, verse 20 through 21. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob will return to who? To the mighty God. It's not just Isaiah who uses this title in reference to God. It is also David, it is Jeremiah, it is Nehemiah who also use this very title. And every single time they use this particular title, Mighty God, it is in reference to the living God. It's not in reference to just a representative of God. You see, what Isaiah is telling us is that 700 years in the future, when this couple, this Mary and Joseph, lock eyes with their newborn baby, they will be looking into the very eyes of God. This is who Jesus is. He is God in flesh. He is fully divine. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And God came near to us so that we might be able to draw near to Him. For years and years, God dwelt with His people, Israel. Specifically, He dwelt in a place in the temple. First it was in a tabernacle, then it was in the temple. And specifically, He dwells in this one room in the temple known as the Holy of Holies. Now, was that room open to anyone who wanted to encounter the presence of God? No, it was not. Only one person, the high priest, could enter into the Holy of Holies. And to ignore that law, well, that could be deadly. It was deadly, as a few people experienced. And how often would the high priest meet with God in the Holy of Holies? Once a year. That's it. One person, once a year, could enter into the presence of God. But then all of that changes on a starry night. A starry night when when God himself enters through the womb of a teenage young lady and is laid in a manger. And when that takes place, an invitation goes out, inviting people far and wide to come meet God. And guess who was the first to be invited? It wasn't the high priest. No, no, it was, it was just common people. It was the shepherds who were out in their fields. It was Foreigners from afar, wise magi, the wise, they're invited to come. And this is what continues throughout the life of Jesus. He just invites anyone and everyone who wants to encounter God to come to him. 
Come, come meet God. Come see me. And this is why we celebrate Christmas Because God, out of His love for us, came near to us so that we might know Him. And what is it that we learn about God when we look at the newborn in the manger? On his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey answers that question this way. He says, if Jesus came to reveal God to us, then what do I learn about God from that first Christmas? The word associations that come to mind as I ponder that question take me by surprise. Humble, approachable, underdog, courageous. These hardly seem appropriate to apply to deity. The God who came to earth came not in a raging uh, whirlwind, nor in a devouring fire. Unimaginably, the maker of all things shrank down, down, down so small has become an ovum, a single fertilized egg, barely visible to the naked eye. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself, said the Apostle Paul. What can be less scary than a newborn with limbs wrapped tight against his body? In Jesus, God found a way of relating to human beings that did not involve fear. Not only did God come near us, he became one of us. Jesus is fully God. At the same time, Jesus is fully human. He spent nine months in a womb. He was born in a decaying body. He was dependent upon others for everything, at least initially. Others had to feed him and burp him and change his diapers. He felt the cold night air. He smelled the stench of the barnyard animals. He needed sleep. He had to learn how to walk and talk, how to make good decisions, how to control his emotions, how to take responsibility for his own actions. He didn't get a pass to miss out on any of the experiences that you and I are subjected to in this world. He experienced them all. And as we talked about last week, This whole strategy, this whole plan of God, this wonderful plan of God to come into the world is almost too much for us to wrap our mind around, as Tim indicated this morning. But it's no less true. He became, or he came to us as one of us. And one of the reasons that he did this is so that he might relate to us and we might be able to relate to him. And that's not easy to do when people come from such vastly different places, is it? Let me give you an illustration. A couple of years ago, one of my boys decided to take a date to Olive Garden. Now, I, I don't know how it was in your household, but Olive Garden was considered to be kind of a treat in the Smith family of four. Uh, most of the time, our dining options, it most likely came with a plastic kid toy at the end and not one of those fancy chocolate mints that you get at Olive Garden. And so Olive Garden was one of those once a month places, maybe choose to go there for your birthday type of places. It was, it was a special place. So he takes this girl to Olive Garden and she shares with him that never before has she ever eaten at Olive Garden. But it's not for the reason that you might assume. It's not because her family couldn't afford it. She grew up in one of those one percenter households 
Her family was much more likely to fly to Italy for dinner than to ever eat at Olive Garden. Now, that may be a bit of exaggeration, but not by much. Now, would it surprise you to hear me say that that relationship did not work out? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that two people can't come from different worlds and find happiness together. What I am saying, though, is it presents a bit of a challenge at times. And we face this challenge with God because at one time, the chasm between us and God and our experiences and our worlds, it was was greater than the size of the Grand Canyon. That we, being human, have a body that knows limitations that's uh, we reside in this world that's so broken. We have this spirit inside of us that is constantly wanting to, to rebel against God. That's, that's us. That's how we're formed. That's who we are. And then you look at God, and He's so different. He's spirits. He knows no limitations. He resides in perfect holiness and harmony with the Trinity and the glorious heavenly realms. That's who God is. And so we come from different worlds and such different places, and we are such different beings. But it's out of his desire to relate to us that Jesus gave it all up to be with us and like us. Now, let me be clear this morning, never once did he stop being divine. Not for a single moment did he stop being God. But at the same time, he became fully human. We see this in Scripture. We see that Jesus experienced all the things that we experienced, as I've mentioned. He experienced poverty and weariness and frustration. He knows what it is to be rejected and disappointed, to feel sorrow and ridicule and loneliness and even temptation. As the TV ad campaign says, Jesus gets us. And I would add Jesus gets us because Jesus became one of us. That's why he gets us. Jesus, God the Son, is knowable. He is relatable. And he is approachable. We can come to him at any time with anything in full confidence that he's going to understand because he has been there too. And as the preacher who wrote the book of Hebrews conveys with his audience, it is those moments in which we feel the greatest sense of our weariness, our weakness as human beings that we ought to especially go to Jesus. He says this in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Can I ask you a question? What do you hear Jesus say to you when you go to him in the heat of temptation? What some of us hear him say is, what's wrong with you? Why would you do that? What do you think about those things? Why do you behave this way, that way? I want to tell you this morning, that's not the voice of Jesus. Jesus is much more likely to say, I get it. 
I've been there. It's not easy. I'm here to help you. And Jesus can't help us. Jesus can help us not simply because he knows the struggle. Jesus can help us because he is mighty God. He's mighty God. So often when we hear that word mighty, immediately comes to mind is the power of Jesus that was displayed in him being able to rule over things like weather and disease and demons and death. But the word that's used in the original language that is translated mighty, it refers to the might of a warrior. And so, Jesus, the newborn king, in that manger, he looks so sweet and mild. But what Isaiah wants us to know is that he is a victorious warrior and that he came to do battle. Now, who did he come to do battle with? It's not who most people assume. He did not come to do battle with Rome. He did not come to do battle with any human oppressor. He came to do battle with the powers and principalities in the heavenly realms, with Satan and his demons, who have been going after God's throne for a long, long time. That's who Jesus came into this world to do battle with. The Apostle John puts it like this in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was why to destroy the devil's work. That's why he showed up, was to destroy the devil's work. And listen, the devil has done quite a bit of work in most of our lives. And for many of us, if not most of us, He started that work a long, long time at a real early point in our lives. For some of you, he started that work in a home with an alcoholic father or with a mother it was impossible to please. For others of us, it was on a playground with a bully who called names and threw punches. And for some, it may have even been in a church with an adult who did the unspeakable. And the wounds that we have incurred in our lives, they are, they're, they're bigger and deeper for some than others, but all of us carry our wounds. And in some cases, if not most cases, those wounds are the reason that we lose our temper, we get addicted, behave selfishly, we act rudely. And while we definitely deserve empathy for the wounds that we've experienced in life, we must not use those wounds as an excuse to wound others. Yes, at one time we were victims, but the time has come for us to be victors. The time has come for us to put an end to Satan's work that now is being, well, it's being perpetrated through us. Uh, this morning, I, I started out reading an article about the Heisman Trophy winner, and I ended up clicking on clickbait about Johnny Carson. And it talked about Johnny Carson, who was widely known as being this great late-night talk show and being uh, super funny and highly regarded by so much society, had all these 
demons in his life, struggling with alcoholism, struggling with just being a womanizer to the extreme, four marriages, never being faithful, and on and on it went. And they said it all went back to a wound that was created by his mother, who he despised the day that she died, and he didn't even show up for her funeral. And the article said he never, ever could take responsibility for his own life because he constantly put it on his mom. And we empathize with the wounding, but it's not an excuse. And we go from being victims to victors when we begin to turn our lives over to Jesus, mighty God, who came to deliver us and to heal us from the wounds. Now, does the healing come quickly, easily? Sometimes, but most often not. It doesn't come quickly and it doesn't come easily because most of the time it requires us doing work that most of us really don't want to do. It requires us actually looking at and feeling all of the trauma that we've experienced in life. It comes with us finally saying, here are some lies that I've believed in my life, and I now want to replace them with the truth of what God shares with me, of who He is and who I am and what He wants to do in my life. It requires even learning how to forgive. It's hard work, but it's work that we can do. Why? Because Jesus, mighty God, He works with us and in us. Listen to the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 and 13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. That all this work that we are hesitant to do, that we don't want to do, Paul says, listen, you've got a power inside of you. You have the mighty God inside of you. He's going to give you that power to do the work, to even have the desire to do the work, if you'll just turn to Him, if you'll trust in Him. You see, what makes Christmas such a special time of year is knowing that the birth of Jesus, mighty God, It started the countdown to the end of Satan and his work. And Jesus makes this very clear in his proclamation. The kingdom of God is here. It's here. And in doing the very work that Isaiah prophesied that the coming Messiah King would do. Isaiah said this about Jesus. Jesus, when he shows up and he stands up to preach, he says, this is exactly why I am here. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from, from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God's kingdom is here, not fully. Satan's work has not ended fully, but make no mistake, the kingdom of God, it's present all around you. And anyone who desires to be a part of his kingdom, be a citizen of his kingdom, to enjoy all the rights and privileges of his kingdom, is invited to enter in. This is the good news. This is the good news that we've been entrusted to proclaim. This is the good news that we have been entrusted to live out. Kingdom of God work, justice and reconciliation, caring for the orphan and the widow, eating with outcasts and outlaws, giving to the needy and the undeserving, 
Repenting and forgiving is the kingdom of God work that we have been entrusted to do. Is it easy work? No, it is not easy work. In fact, many of us think, I'm not sure I can do this work. Let me assure you this morning, you can't do this work. Not on your own. You can't. But when empowered by the Spirit of God, which is promised to every single person who turns to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, when empowered by that Spirit, mighty God, you can do more than you can even begin to imagine this morning. So if the name, the title, Mighty of God, does not fill you with hope today, I don't know what else will. And so as we close this morning, I want to invite you to stand and join me in speaking these words to our mighty God, Jesus. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. You know, we'll do it a little different this morning because I, I get off on pace. So what I'm going to, I, I mess up on our pace a lot of times. So I'm going to read a sentence and you just speak it back. Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus. Through all generations forever and ever. Amen. So I leave you with this to think about this week. What would you love to see mighty God do in your life in 2024? In your family? in 2024, in this church in 2024, in our community in 2024. I want to ask you to take that seriously, to pray about it this week, to write your answer down on a three-by-five card and bring it with you next week. And if you would be willing to just hand it to me, I want to pray about those things because I believe with all confidence that God will do maybe not exactly that, but if we trust Him, He'll do even more than we begin to think or imagine.